Hey everyone, I'm Joe. I'm Steph. And this, this is, is Ruthie. Ruthie. Um, welcome to Love Chapel Hill, where our name is our mission, to love Chapel Hill with the heart of Jesus. Thanks for worshiping with us today. Hey Love Chapel Hill, um, hope everybody's doing well. Um, I'm Ariel, as I'm sure you already know. Um, I just wanted to um, give you guys a couple opportunities to connect with us, even though we're physically distant, um, especially for new people. Um, we have something called a connect card, which the link should be either below or above the video, no matter where you're watching. Um, and this is a fantastic way to just kind of get connected. Um, and we really love having new people, especially during this time. Um, so just to kind of see um, what you're interested in from the church and just to, you know, kind of get plugged into that first person. Um, so I am, this is definitely one of the things that I am most grateful that I did when I first was kind of foraying into Love Chapel Hill, um, just because it was kind of a nice little foot in the door and just like talking to somebody. Um, we also have a website, lovechapelhill.com, which features other really great ways to connect. So I encourage you guys to go to that as well. Um, and yeah, so we just kind of hope to continue connecting with everyone throughout this. And we have tons of, you know, Zoom meetings for prayer and Bible study. And um, it's just a great way to kind of see some faces that maybe aren't the typical faces that you're seeing. But um, we miss you all and very excited if... Um, if you, we had a kind of haven't met you in person yet. So um, again, hope everybody's well and have a great rest of your Sunday. Hey everyone, it's Lauren. I hope you all are doing well this Sunday. As I'm sure you've noticed, it's gotten a lot colder over the past few weeks. And I don't know about you, but I've had to really bundle up when I'm going outside in order to stay warm. As I think about the weather changes, I think a lot about our church members and our friends who are living outside right now and who are struggling more to stay warm. I have been really grateful over the past few weeks to get to know a lot of these people better at the varsity on Sundays. And something that I have noticed over the past few weeks is that a few people who drop by um, are missing essential clothing items for the winter, um, like a solid pair of gloves or a warm coat. And because of this, I want to take a moment today to invite you all to donate to Strangely Warmed. We've been collecting and distributing clothing items over the past few weeks to people who could use them. And right now, as it continues to get colder, we have a need for more donations. Our biggest need specifically is men's clothes, coats, and gloves. If you'd like to donate, um, you're welcome to do so at the Varsity on Sunday mornings from 9 to 9.30. And if you would prefer to um, donate funds, you can also do that by going to the give option at lovechapelhill.com. If you choose this option, it's great because we are able to go out and buy the specific items that are most needed right now. I hope you all will join us in helping make sure that folks are staying safe and warm this winter. My step. 
So
The Sermon on the Mount ends with these last uh, few words from Matthew chapter 7. Here's what it says, starting with verse 28. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. And so that word authority is really key uh, at the close of the Sermon on the Mount, the sense that the people recognize that in the teachings of Jesus, there was this different kind of authority that they didn't see from their other religious leaders, from their other teachers, uh, but they recognized in Jesus this authority. It didn't come from a position that Jesus held. Uh, it was something that he embodied as a person. Um, they could sense that in him. We've all been around people before uh, whose authority simply comes from their position. And they have a sense of that too. You can tell in the way that they lead, in the way that they act in that position, uh, that there's a sense of fear that if anybody takes that position away, then that power goes away as well because the power is simply coming from that position. It's not the case with Jesus. He's not that kind of leader. He embodies this authority. He lives this authority. It's in who he is as a person. And the people recognize that in his words. As we move out of the Sermon on the Mount, and the articulation of the kingdom that we get there. Uh, in this next section of the Gospel of Matthew in, in chapters 8 and 9, which over the next couple of weeks we'll be in, um, we see that that theme of authority continues. It, it flows out of the Sermon on the Mount. But we see it's not only in the words that Jesus speaks, but it's in the way that Jesus lives uh, it's in his actions. So as we've gone through the gospel of Matthew, we see the arrival of the kingdom in the first few chapters. We see the announcement of the kingdom in Matthew chapter four, when Jesus begins his ministry with this same announcement that John the Baptist brought in preparing the way for Jesus. Uh, this announcement of the good news, the gospel, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then we move into the articulation of the kingdom as Jesus lays out this radical vision of what it looks like to be the people of God in the world uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. And now we see the action of the kingdom, this reality that gets unleashed through the life of Jesus, through the deeds of Jesus. And the people recognize that. They see that authority, not only in his words, but embodied in his life. It's that reality unleashed. If the sermon shows us what the kingdom culture looks like and describes the kingdom culture, then the, this next section of the Gospel of Matthew uh, in this action section shows us what the kingdom reign looks like. This is what it looks like when God answers that prayer of your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven as it rolls out here. Uh, at the end of that Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes this statement about the importance of practice, the importance of walking in the way of Jesus, of living this out, not just admiring the words, but accepting that invitation into his life. And he says, a person that puts this into practice uh, is like a person who builds their house upon the rock, on the stone, on that firm foundation. And when the storm comes, that house is able to withstand uh, because it's this life of practice. But a person who listens and then doesn't actually live this out, doesn't act this out, is like a person who builds their house on, on the sand. And when the storm comes, that kind of house collapses. That house cannot stand. 
in the storm. And so Jesus shows us that. Uh, he doesn't just challenge us with that, with that little parable, but he shows us with his own life what it looks like to put this into practice. Uh, I saw this last week in a way that just that hit me. Um, as we were reading the Sermon on the Mount together uh, last week, uh, one of the people um, reading uh, was our friend Annalise, who's one of our college students and a core leader here in the church. Uh, she read a section of the Sermon on the Mount, which includes a statement that Jesus makes, this challenge that Jesus gives, that if anybody is in need and asks for your help, then you should give them that help. Uh, if someone asks to borrow something from you, then do that willingly and without hesitation. And as she read that, uh, it hit me that I had just seen her do that. About 30 minutes before she came in here to film and, and look at the camera and, and read those words, I had seen her actually live that out. Um, as Annalise was coming into the varsity to prepare to film this reading, uh, she was stopped by someone who asked for her help. Uh, I was standing at the door of the varsity getting ready to let people in who were coming to film. Uh, and before she got to the door, she was stopped and asked for help. And um, I saw her to a person who said that they were hungry and asked for money for food. She said, I don't have any money, but I just made these muffins. Can I give you one of these muffins? And um, the person was deeply grateful uh, and surprised. And um, it was a beautiful exchange to see. And it was beautiful to see that. But then later to see her read those words of Jesus and to say, I just watched that put into action. It was powerful. There's something compelling about a person who lives out what Jesus says, who lives out the words that they say that they believe, who actually builds their life around this teaching and then lives it out out of the power of Jesus. I want to be that kind of person. Pray for me that, I, that the grace of Jesus makes me into that kind of person. It's one thing to say it, to read it from Scripture or to say it into a camera. It's a completely different thing to live it out in real life. Pray for all of us in that. Jesus shows us that he is that kind of person. As we move into Matthew chapter 8, here's what it says. We get three stories back to back of this miraculous power of Jesus, the miraculous action of the kingdom being unleashed. Uh, three stories back to back that all point uh, to the reality that Jesus is unleashing in the world. Here it goes, uh, chapter eight, starting with verse one. When he came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cured of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. We're going to stop right there with that first story. Uh, and this is the story of an outcast, um, someone who, because of this disease of leprosy, um, was completely cut off from the rest of society. Leprosy was an incredibly dangerous skin disease um, that was just this, this, this brutal disease. Um, it was a slow 
movement towards death really is what it was. Um, slowly your body is decaying while you are still alive. It's a disease that eats away at the flesh. Um, you're walking around with these open sores um, and bit by bit, your body is dying piece by piece, body part by body part. Uh, you are in this slow progression of death. It's not only that it was so painful and this physical kind of misery that came with it, but the sense that it was so contagious uh, that that you could not be around anyone. If you were approaching as you're moving through life, moving through the community, uh, you had to announce that you were coming. Uh, you had to announce the word unclean, unclean, to let people know that you were carrying this disease and that you were a threat to them because of that. And so the way that the society was set up as a way of protecting the other people in the society, uh, as a way to keep that uncleanness from one person passing to another and that death sentence moving from one person to another, um, there was this distance put in place. Um, it was social it was physical pain. It was emotional pain. It was mental pain. It was even spiritual pain. Because of this uncleanness, you were not allowed to enter into the temple and you were not allowed to participate in worship because of that holy space being made unclean by your presence in it. This is very painful reality from this time in which Jesus lived. In many ways, it's hard for us to get our minds around that reality, except that over the past year, uh, we have all been in an experience when the potential of this contagious virus being passed from one person to another has made us keep our distance from each other. Uh, it's put this sense of fear of what could happen uh, and this sense of threat of death, almost half a million Americans losing their lives from this. It's interesting that in the day and time of Jesus, the, the leper, the person who is carrying this disease, uh, there was a specific distance that they had to keep from other people as a way to uh, keeping this from passing to them. Uh, Four cubits was the distance. A uh, cubit is a unit that gets used in scripture quite a bit. Uh, it's not something that we know off the top of our head, but if you go and research it, you'll find that a cubit was about 18 inches. And so four cubits works out to be six feet, six feet of distance from people. One of the things that we have experienced in this is not just the fear of a virus that might be caught that then puts you in this physical danger uh, and the physical sickness and pain that comes with that. But in our attempt to be wise and to do the loving thing, um, many people over this past year have experienced that social isolation. Um, it's not just a physical sickness and the fear of that, but it's the social distance that people have experienced and the pain of that. Uh, it's cut us off from community in so many different ways. I think that's one of the reasons why 
we've seen as part of our discipleship path, uh, we've been doing discipleship bands, these smaller, intentionally intimate groups uh, designed to help spur each other on in our depth of discipleship and following Jesus. And we've been doing that as a church for probably five or six years, something like that. And over the course of the last year, uh, we've seen those groups more than double. And it's most likely in reaction to this reality of people longing for that sense of connection and to continue to experience that sense of community. I want to encourage you that uh, as a church, I'm so grateful for the way that you have responded. Um, And thank you for your encouragement towards wisdom and acting in love. And you have done that consistently. And I'm so proud of you uh, for that. And I'm grateful for you in that. Um, And so, but I just want to speak to that reality that people are experiencing. Um, I want to invite you to keep finding ways to find that intentional connection because we need it. This person in this story was suffering on all of those fronts, ostracized from the community, this distance that they had to keep because of this contagious disease that they carried. And then Jesus shows up. And just like Jesus, he blows through every other barrier that people have set up, as we've said over and over again throughout this process, love will bridge the distance. And that's exactly what he does. He goes directly to this person. And what does he do? Does he speak healing to this person? Not only that, but he does this controversial move, breaking all kinds of barriers. He reaches out his hand and he touches this physical touch. What was seen as a threat, Jesus puts his hand on this man and he says, I am willing, be clean. And in this powerful moment, we see the uh, what was supposed to be contagious and a threat towards Jesus what was a threat towards contaminating Jesus. Instead, Jesus turns that on its head and it works in reverse. And the holiness and the wholeness of Jesus passes from him to this man who was experiencing leprosy. And the man is healed and the man is made clean because what Jesus has passes to him. In that culture and with this disease, it was supposed to happen the opposite way. What this man had by Jesus touching him, what the man had should have passed to Jesus. But Jesus makes this work in reverse. And what he has is passed to the man. And in that beautiful moment of grace, the holiness of Jesus becomes contagious to him. And he is made clean. We often think about holiness as something that has to be protected And if it's not protected, then it can become contaminated. But what Jesus shows us is the opposite. No, it's not the holiness that becomes contaminated. It's the holiness that is contagious and can pass to others around us. The holiness of Jesus is a threat to brokenness. The holiness of Jesus is a threat to sin because what he has passes to us and we are made new in that transforming grace of Jesus and the holy love of Jesus that is given to us. This is a beautiful act of grace 
And it's a beautiful image of the power of holiness to transform us. The holiness of Jesus contagious and passing to us what he has given to us. And we are made whole even in our brokenness. We move into the next section here. So first Jesus comes in contact with this outcast. Um, and next he comes in contact with an enemy. And he shows us what it looks like when the kingdom is unleashed and when the kingdom comes in contact with its enemies. Here's what it says, starting with verse five. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. So here we see another example of the authority of Jesus being unleashed and the reign of the kingdom being unleashed and what happens to Jesus' enemies in this reign of the kingdom. Uh, the centurion is an enemy because the centurion is a leader within the Roman army. This is a person who would have been over a unit of about a hundred uh, Roman soldiers. And so was this person of authority within the Roman army. And at this time, as we've said over and over again, we have to realize that that context in which this story is happening, uh, Jerusalem and Israel is not this sovereign nation at this point in time. They are under the oppressive reign of the Roman Empire. They have been conquered by Rome. They're under the oppression of Rome. Their land has been taken and Rome claims it as theirs. Uh, their way of life completely disrupted. Rome allows them to keep some functions of their daily life, but it's not an act of grace. It's an act of manipulation of keeping people, uh, giving them just enough autonomy uh, to keep them from rising up against the Roman Empire. But it's not grace, it's manipulation. They're under the oppression of Rome. And this is not just an average Roman soldier who's just following orders. He says right here that he is one who gives the orders. This is a person of authority within the Roman Empire. And so you cannot move past this too quickly. Uh, yes, there's the sense that, that he is a Gentile, which means a non-Jewish person. And so because of that, also this contact that Jesus comes into with him, he could be made unclean by him as well. Uh, this is why the man says, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Don't come into my house because I know that when a Jewish person enters the house of a Gentile, they are completely unclean according to the Jewish faith. 
And so we see all of these dynamics at play, all of these walls that are built up, all of these lines that have been drawn, these lines of hate and these lines of fear that have been drawn between the Jewish people and the Roman Empire and this representation of the authority of the Roman Empire. And yet Jesus looks at this enemy of his people, knowing what kind of harm the Roman Empire has done to his people. And he acts with love. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I'm telling you, love your enemies and pray even for those who persecute you. Jesus is not just a man with powerful words. Jesus is a man who backs up his words with action. And we see him doing this in this moment. Again, we see the authority at play here. Jesus speaks and from a distance, Jesus is able to heal this person from a distance. And then what does he do? He says to the centurion, go. He gives him the order to go. Your servant has been healed and sends him back to find his servant healed. There's so much going on here. But what I feel drawn for us to say about this moment is to really focus in on this sense of Jesus saying in the Sermon on the Mount, I'm telling you, love your enemies. But it's not just something poetic. It's something prophetic that he is doing and he is acting out and he's showing us what it looks like. This is not a simple or easy move, but it's a move of deep power, of deep grace, of love motivating this action. When we talk about justice, which is a conversation that we must continue to have, and we talk about that quite a bit, And we have to keep that conversation going. But when we talk about justice, we have to realize and we have to be confronted with the truth that the biblical vision of justice is not just about retribution. It's not making people pay. It's not just about retribution, but the biblical vision of justice is about restoration. And this is part of the shocking grace of Jesus is that he even shows grace to this person who is in the role of oppressor. We don't like that. We do not like that. So often in our conversations around justice right now, most of it hinges on the oppressed trading places with the oppressor. It's not just about them being brought into a place of unity or a place of equality. It's about trading places. And in some of what you hear about justice, the goal is to see the oppressed become the oppressor. That's not the way of the kingdom. That's not the way of the kingdom. Uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu gives us a brilliant example of this uh, in helping to lead uh, the peace and reconciliation movement uh, after the uh, tragedy of apartheid in South Africa. Uh, Same with Nelson Mandela. Uh, in this sense that the you just can't trade places. That, that isn't justice. That isn't justice and it's certainly not the radical biblical vision of what justice looks like. It's not just retribution, it's restoration. And so 
out of the heart of Jesus, out of the radical vision of justice that we get through the prophet Isaiah, that we get through the beauty of the Psalms, that we get through the life of Jesus and through the life of the church. What we want to see happen is we pray for the lifting of the oppressed out of their suffering, and we pray for the breaking down of the oppressor out of their sin until both are brought into this place of family as the people of God. That is tough to swallow. That is a tough idea to get our our minds around. But we don't pray only for the oppressed to be liberated from their chains. We also pray that the oppressor would be conquered by grace and would be brought into transformation through the holy love and grace of Jesus Christ. Howard Thurman was an African-American theologian, scholar, minister. Uh, He was a um, classmate, a college classmate of Martin Luther King Sr. and then later became a mentor to Martin Luther King Jr. He wrote a beautiful book in 1949 called Jesus and the Disinherited. And he becomes this mentor, not only to Dr. King, but also to many of the other ministers who were at the heartbeat and the core of the civil rights movement. And that book was very influential to them uh, in the way that they lived out a kingdom vision of what nonviolence looks like, not just retribution, but restoration and wholeness and healing. He makes this statement and it strikes me. He says, again and again, I am aware that the light not only illumines, but it also burns. The light not only illumines, but it also burns. To the oppressor, the light burns. The light illumines, opens the eyes to the sin of oppression and burns and brings a sense of breaking down that sin into a place of repentance and into a place that leads to restoration. And the same thing happens to the oppressed. The light illumines, but it also burns. And Jesus confronts us with this very difficult to swallow truth. You've heard it said, love your enemies, but I'm telling you, all, love, love your neighbor, but I'm telling you, also love your enemies. This is hard for us to get our heads around. Obviously, we need to say here, and we've talked about this in more depth in other places, so we can't go into it now, but there's always a sense of, uh, of nuance dynamic when we talk about that. Anytime there's a, a abuse that has happened, okay? So we're not talking about just letting abusers off of the hook. Um, we're not talking about that. We're not talking about forcing abused back into a relationship with the abuser. We're not talking about that. Uh, there's a lot that we need to go into around that. Uh, so just give grace in that space right now. Um, but we do have to recognize the light burns us on this point. And the grace of Jesus calls us into this radical life of being willing to even love our enemies and praying that even oppressors are conquered by grace and brought into the transforming love of Jesus. This is hard teaching, isn't it? No, it's impossible. And apart from the grace of Jesus, apart from the Son of God that we see right here, 
empowering that love and empowering that transformation apart from his love, this is absolutely impossible. But through the power and strength that comes from him, not from our moral character or from our willpower, but from him, he makes this a reality, unleash those beautiful words brought into shocking reality through the way that he acts his kingdom out. This is one of those moments in our lives when we have to admit that the way of Jesus seems too wide at times and embraces people that we don't want to see get embraced. And the way of Jesus seems too narrow at times, calling us into a kind of love that we don't want to walk in. But the same light that illumines is also burning. And we have to respond in obedience to this teacher who is the Son of God. This teacher who not only speaks with authority, but lives with authority. And he calls us in to that. It's interesting that Jesus then makes this image about the the feast at the end of all things and the kingdom feast at the restoration of all things and the seat at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's this beautiful image that we will be shocked at the people who end up sitting next to us at the table. And we might be shocked at some who aren't there, he says as well. Those who close themselves off from this way of the kingdom. And like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, refuse to come into the banquet because they're too offended at the depth of the grace of this father and his son and the Holy Spirit. We are out of time, but we can't go without talking about Peter's mother-in-law here. And this third miracle that we see happen so quickly, uh, we're going to move into that section. And so if Jesus acts in this controversial way uh, with embracing the outcast and this person who is experiencing leprosy, and we see him move in this controversial way of embracing um, the enemy in the centurion, uh, then we also see him moving in a surprising way of embracing the commonplace. There's someone that's right in front of his eyes and he doesn't only look out at this wild controversial edge and fringe of the community, but he also looks right in front of him and he has compassion for the person who is right beneath his nose. People who are always around us, who are commonplace in our lives, there's a danger of them becoming invisible to us. But here's what it says that happens. It says, verse 14, when Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw, he saw Peter's mother-in-law, a person who could have easily been invisible to him, commonplace, always in, always in front of him. And he didn't just look to the wild and controversial fringes, but he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand once again, the touch and the fever left her and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon possessed were brought to him and he drove out the spirits with a word and he healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and he carried our diseases. Again, in this, we see Jesus not just looking to the controversial edges, but to the commonplace, the people right in front. He saw her. He saw her. 
and he had compassion on her and he healed her. Uh, Jesus is now uh, in the town of Capernaum. This is Peter's hometown. Even though Jesus is born in Bethlehem, uh, he's from Nazareth. He makes Capernaum his headquarters for his ministry as he's doing his ministry throughout that region of Galilee. And Peter's house becomes basically this hub and this headquarters, uh, this home base for his ministry and Peter's mother-in-law living there with them. And he has compassion on her. It's so beautiful. And so once again, we see him unleashing his contagious grace, his conquering love, even for this person, that it could have been easy for him to look beyond because he's looking at the grand horizons of this kingdom. Jesus, open our eyes to the people in our lives who are always around us, who need to experience your compassion through us. Help us to see them in fresh ways, not just with grand visions, but with open eyes to see the people who are right in front of us. The final thing here that I find so compelling is that Matthew quotes uh, the great prophet Isaiah as he so frequently does throughout his gospel to give us a sense of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. Specifically here, he's quoting from Isaiah 53. And this is a passage, uh, those who are going through the Isaiah study, uh, you're going to be getting into this. But uh, this is a, a passage in which Isaiah is talking about the suffering servant. And so this Messiah this Christ, this King, this divine Son of God, this revolutionary teacher unleashing this powerful kingdom that is so controversial and compelling. And yet Isaiah says that he is willing to suffer for us and he takes our brokenness and he is willingly broken by it. And in that, he unleashes his contagious grace to us his conquering love as he's broken by our brokenness and in that heals our wounds. This is obviously pointing ahead to what Jesus is going to do. Here we have Jesus on this healing spree and there's so much buzz around Jesus, so much excitement around this authority of Jesus. But this is the first Sunday of Lent. So we know where this is headed. We know that as a community who is walking with Jesus, we have just turned our faces towards the direction of the cross. And now we are headed towards Good Friday. This is where this whole story is going. He is going to be broken by our brokenness and by his wounds, we are going to be healed. This is where this is headed. This is such an incredible king that we see in action, but we have to remember that this king is going to be crowned by a crown of thorns, that his throne is going to become a cross. As we walk with him in this season of Lent, this is where this story is going to go. And that is where we are going to see the culmination of the action of this kingdom that is being unleashed. That is where we are going to see the authority of Jesus presented in this unshakable way, as in his authority as king, he conquers sin and he will even conquer death itself. This is our king. This is the action of the kingdom. Brace yourself in this first Sunday of Lent. We are walking with him 
and this king is leading us towards his cross. Every blessing 
Thank you so much for joining with us today and for watching this video through to the end. We are just so thankful for each and every one of you, and we hope that you're finding a way to connect with us um, beyond just watching these Sunday morning services that we put out. Um, if you go to our website, you will see a ton of different virtual events throughout the week, Bible studies and groups meeting, where are great places to connect virtually during this time. Um, and in addition, on our website, you will find how to fill out a prayer request. Let us know what you're going through. We want to hear from you and we want to be able to pray with you. So please do that. So we've entered into a season of Lent, um, which I recognize is interesting because in a lot of ways, it feels like we never left Lent last year, uh, just how this this past year is gone. However, Lent is such an important season to mark um, before we get to Easter. It is the season of fasting and, re and repentance. And Jesus's first call as he enters into his ministry is repent. And so that's what we are to be doing right now. So to close out our um, our worship today. I want to read a section of Psalm 51. This is a passage I know I will be returning to often personally during this time, and I think it is a great prayer for us to close together. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me of my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proven right when you speak and justified when you judge. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence, or take your Holy Spirit from me, that restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Amen. Mm -hmm.